Chapter 3, Section 3 of A Practical View of the Prevailing Religious System by William Wilberforce. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Lillis. Chapter 3, Section 3 Consideration of the Reasonableness of Affections Towards an Invisible Being. But forced at last to retreat from his favorite position, and compelled to acknowledge that the religious affections towards our blessed Saviour are not unreasonable, he still, however, maintains the combat, suggesting that by the very constitution of our nature we are not susceptible of them towards an invisible being, in whose case, it will be added, we are shut out from all those means of communication and intercourse which knit and cement the union between man and man. We do not mean to deny that there is something in this objection. It might even seem to plead the authority of Scripture in its favor. Quote, he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? End quote. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. And it was indeed no new remark in Horace's days. Senius irritant animos demisa per aures, quam quae sunt oculis subjecta fidelibus. We receive impressions more readily from visible objects. We feel them more strongly and retain them more durably. But though it must be granted that this circumstance makes it a more difficult task to preserve the affections in question in a healthful and vigorous state, is it thereby rendered impossible? This were indeed a most precipitate conclusion, and any one who should be disposed to admit the truth of it might be at least induced to hesitate when he should reflect that the argument applies equally against the possibility of the love of God, a duty of which the most cursory reader of Scripture, if he admit its divine authority, cannot but acknowledge the indispensable obligation— but we need only look back to the scripture proofs which have been lately adduced to be convinced that the religious affections are therein inculcated on us as a matter of high and serious obligation hence we may be assured that the impossibility stated by our opponent does not exist let us scrutinize this matter however a little more minutely and we shall be compelled to acknowledge though the conclusion may make against ourselves that the objection vanishes when we fairly and accurately investigate the circumstances of the case with this view, let us look a little into the nature of the affections of the human mind, and endeavor to ascertain whence it is that they derive their nutriment, and are found from experience to increase in strength. The state of man is such that his feelings are not the obedient servants of his reason, prompt at once to follow its dictates as to their direction and their measure. Excellence is the just object of love, good in expectancy, of hope, evil to be apprehended, of fear. Our fellow creatures' misfortunes and sufferings constitute the just objects of pity." Each of these passions, it might be thought, would be excited in proportion to what our reason should inform us were the magnitude and consequent claims of its corresponding object. But this is by no means the case. Take first, for a proof, the instance of pity. We read of slaughtered thousands with less emotion than we hear the particulars of a shocking accident which has happened in the next street. The distresses of a novel, which at the same time we know to be fictitious, affect us more than the dry narrative of a battle." We become so much interested by these incidents of the imagination, aware all the while that they are merely such, that we cannot speedily banish them from our thoughts, nor recover the tone from our minds, and often we scarcely bring ourselves to lay down our book at the call of real misfortune, of which we go perhaps to the relief on principle of duty, but with little sense of interest or emotion of tenderness. It were easy to show that it is much the same in the case of other affections. Whatever be the cause of this disproportion— which, as metaphysics fall not within our province, we shall not stop to examine, the fact is undeniable. There appears naturally to be a certain strangeness between the passion and its object, which familiarity and the power of habit must gradually overcome. You must strive to bring them into a close contact. They must be jointed and glued together by the particulars of little incidents. Thus, in the production of heat in the physical world, the flint and the steel produce not the effect without collision. 
the rudest barbarian will tell us the necessity of attrition and the chemist of mixture now an object it is admitted is brought into closer contact with its corresponding passion by being seen and conversed with this we grant is one way but does it follow that there is no other to assert this would be something like maintaining in contradiction to universal experience that objects of vision alone are capable of attracting our regard but nothing can be more unfounded than such a supposition it might appear to be too nearly approaching the ludicrous to suggest as an example to the contrary the metaphysician's attachment to his insubstantial speculations or the zeal displayed in the pursuit extra flamantia moena mundi of abstract sciences where there is no idea of bringing them quote, within the visible diurnal sphere end quote, to the vulgarity of practical application the instance of the novel before mentioned proves that we may be extremely affected by what we know to be merely ideal incidents and beings by much thinking or talking of any one by using our minds to dwell on his excellences by placing him in imaginary situations which interest and affect us we find ourselves becoming insensibly more and more attached to him whereas it is the surest expedient for extinguishing an attachment which already exists to engage in such occupations or society as may cause our casual thoughts and more fixed meditations to be diverted from the object of it ask a mother who has been long separated from her child especially if he has been in circumstances of honour or of danger to draw her attention to him and to keep it in wakefulness and exercise and she will tell you that so far from being less dear he appears to have grown more the object of her affections she seems to herself to love him even better than the child who has been living under her roof and has been daily in her view how does she rejoice in his good fortune and weep over his distresses with what impatience does she anticipate the time of his return we find therefore that sight and personal intercourse do not seem necessary to the production or increase of attachment where the means of close contact have been afforded but on the other hand if an object has been prevented from coming into close contact sight and personal intercourse are not sufficient to give it the power of exciting the affections in proportion to its real magnitude suppose the case of a person whom we have often seen and may have occasionally conversed with and of whom we have been told in the general that he possesses extraordinary merits we assent to the assertion but if we have no knowledge of particulars no close acquaintance with him nothing in short which brings his merits home to us they interest us less than what we know to be a far inferior degree of the very same qualities in one of our common associates a parent has several children all constantly under his eye and equally dear to him yet if any one of them be taken ill it is brought into so much closer contact than before that it seems to absorb and engross the parent's whole affection thus then though it will not be denied that an object by being visible may thereby excite its corresponding affection with more facility yet this is manifestly far from being the prime consideration and so far are we from being the slaves of the sense of vision that a familiar acquaintance with the intrinsic excellences of an object aided it must be admitted by the power of habit will render us almost insensible to the impressions which its outward form conveys and able entirely to lose the consciousness of an unsightly exterior we may be permitted to remark that the foregoing observations furnish an explanation less discreditable than that which has been sometimes given of an undoubted phenomenon of the human mind that the greatest public misfortunes however the understanding may lecture are apt really to affect our feelings less than the most trivial disaster which happens to ourselves an eminent writer footnote dr adam smith vide theory of moral sentiments scarcely overstated the point when he observed quote, that it would occasion a man of humanity more real disturbance to know that he was the next morning to lose his little finger than to hear that the great empire of china had been suddenly swallowed up by an earthquake 
the thoughts of the former would keep him awake all night in the latter case after making many melancholy reflections on the precariousness of human life and the vanity of all the labours of man which could thus be annihilated in a moment after a little speculation too perhaps on the causes of the disaster and its effects in the political and commercial world he would pursue his business or pleasure with the same ease and tranquillity as if no such accident had happened and snore at night with the most profound serenity over the ruin of a hundred million of his fellow-creatures selfishness is not the cause of this for the most unfeeling brute on earth would surely think nothing of the loss of a finger if he could thereby prevent so dreadful a calamity this doctrine of contact which has been opened above affords a satisfactory solution and from all which has been said the writer has reason perhaps to apologize for the length of the discussion the circumstances by which the affections of the mind toward any particular object are generated and strengthened may easily be collected the chief of these appear to be whatever tends to give a distinct and lively impression of the object by setting before it its minute parts and by often drawing towards it the thoughts and affections so as to invest it by degrees with a confirmed ascendancy whatever tends to excite and to keep and exercise a lively interest in its behalf in other words full knowledge distinct and frequent mental entertainment and pathetic contemplations supposing these means have been used in any given degree it may be expected that they will be more or less efficacious in proportion as the intrinsic qualities of the object afford greater or less scope for their operation and more or fewer materials with which to work can it then be conceived that they will be of no avail when steadily practised in the case of our redeemer if the principles of love and gratitude and joy and hope and trust are not utterly extinct within us they cannot but be called forth by the various corresponding objects which that blessed contemplation would gradually bring forth to our view well might the language of the apostle be addressed to christians quote, whom having not seen ye love in whom though now ye see him not yet believing ye rejoice with unspeakable joy and full of glory first peter chapter one verse eight but fresh considerations pour in to render in this instance the plea of its being impossible to love an invisible being still more invalid our blessed saviour if we may be permitted so to say is not removed far from us and the various relations in which we stand towards him seem purposely made known to us in order to furnish so many different bonds of connection with him and consequent occasions of continual intercourse he exhibits not himself to us quote, dark with excessive brightness end quote, but is let down as it were to the possibilities of human converse we may not think that he is incapable of entering into our little concerns and sympathizing with them for we are graciously assured that he is not one quote, who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities having been in all points tempted like as we are end quote. hebrews chapter four verse fifteen the figures under which he is represented are such as convey the ideas of the utmost tenderness Quote, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd he shall gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young isaiah chapter forty verse eleven quote, they shall not hunger or thirst neither shall the heat nor sun smite them for he that hath mercy on them shall lead them even by springs of water shall he guide them isaiah chapter forty nine verse ten quote, i will not leave you orphans End quote was one of his last consolatory declarations john chapter fourteen verse eighteen footnote the word comfortless is rendered at the margin orphans the children of christ are here separated indeed from the personal view of him but not from his paternal affection and paternal care meanwhile let them quicken their regards by the animating anticipation of that blessed day when he quote, who is gone to prepare a place for them will come again to receive them unto himself End quote. then shall they be admitted to his more immediate presence 
Quote, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, even as I am known. End quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. Surely more than enough has now been said to prove that this particular case, from its very nature, furnishes the most abundant and powerful considerations and means for exciting the feelings, and that it might be contended without fear of refutation that by the diligent and habitual use of these considerations and means we might with confident expectation of success engage in the work of raising our affections towards our blessed saviour to a state of due force and activity but blessed be god we have a still better reliance for the grand circumstance of all yet remains behind which the writer has been led to defer from his wish to contend with his opponents on their own ground this circumstance is that here no less than in other particulars the christian's hope is founded not on the speculations of the strength of man but on the declaration of him who cannot lie on the power of omnipotence we learn from the scriptures that it is one main part of the operations of the holy spirit to implant these heavenly principles in the human mind and to cherish their growth we are encouraged to believe that in answers to our prayers this aid from above will give efficacy to our earnest endeavors if used in humble dependence on divine grace we may therefore with confidence take the means which have been suggested but let us in our turn be permitted to ask our opponents have they humbly and perseveringly applied for this divine strength or disclaiming that assistance perhaps as tempting them into indolence have they been so much the more strenuous and unwearied in the use of their own unaided endeavours or rather have they not been equally negligent of both renouncing the one they have wholly omitted the other but this is far from being all they even reverse all the methods which we have recommended as being calculated to increase regard and exactly follow that course which would be pursued by any one who should wish to reduce an excessive affection yet thus leaving untried all the means which whether from reason or scripture we maintain to be necessary to the production of the end nay using such as are of directly opposite nature these men presume to talk to us of impossibilities we may rather contend that they furnish a fresh proof of the soundness of our reasonings we lay it down as a fundamental position that speculative knowledge alone that mere superficial cursory considerations will be of no avail nothing is to be done without the diligent continued use of the appointed method they themselves afford an instance of the truth of our assertions and while they supply no argument against the efficacy of the mode prescribed they acknowledge at least that they are wholly ignorant of any other but let us now turn our eyes to christians of a higher order to those who have actually proved the truth of our reasonings who have not only assumed the name but who have possessed the substance and felt the power of christianity who though often foiled by the remaining corruptions and shamed and cast down under a sense of their many imperfections have known in their better seasons what it was to experience its firm hope its dignified joy its unshaken trust and its more than human consolations in their hearts love also towards their redeemer has glowed a love not superficial and unmeaning think not that this would be the subject of our praise but constant and rational resulting from a strong impression of the worth of its object and heightened by an abiding sense of great unmerited and continually accumulating obligations ever manifesting themselves in acts of diligent obedience or of patient suffering such was the religion of the holy martyrs of the sixteenth century the illustrious ornaments of the english church they realized the theory which we have now been faintly tracing look to their writings and you will find that their thoughts and affections have been much exercised in habitual views of the blessed jesus thus they used to require means what were the effects persecution and distress degradation and contempt in vain assailed them 
all these evils served but to bring their affections into closer contact with their object and not only did their love feel no diminution or abatement but it rose to all the exigencies of the occasion and burned with an increase of ardour and when brought forth at last to a cruel and ignominious death they repined not at their fate but rather rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of christ by the blessing of god the writer might refer to still more recent times but lest his authority should be disputed let us go to the apostle of our lord and while on a very cursory perusal of the writings we must acknowledge that they commend and even prescribe to us the love of christ as one of the chief of our christian graces so on a more attentive inspection of these writings we shall discover abundant proofs that they were themselves bright examples of their own precept that our blessed saviour was really the object of their warmest affections and what he had done and suffered for them the continual matter of their grateful remembrance the disposition so prevalent in the bulk of nominal christians to form a religious system for themselves instead of taking it from the word of god is strikingly observable in their scarcely admitting except in the most vague and general sense the doctrine of the influence of the holy spirit if we look into the scriptures for information on this particular we learn a very different lesson we are in them distinctly taught that quote, of ourselves we can do nothing end quote. that quote, we are by nature children of wrath end quote. and under the power of the evil spirit our understandings being naturally dark and our hearts averse from spiritual things and we are directed to pray for the influence of the holy spirit to enlighten our understandings to dissipate our prejudices to purify our corrupt minds and to renew us after the image of our heavenly father it is this influence which is represented as originally awaking us from slumber as enlightening us in darkness as quote, quickening us when dead end quote. ephesians chapter two one and five as quote, delivering us from the power of the devil end quote, as drawing us to god as quote, translating us into the kingdom of his dear son end quote. colossians chapter one verse thirteen as quote, creating us anew in christ jesus end quote. ephesians two verse ten as quote, dwelling in us and walking in us second corinthians chapter six verse sixteen so that quote, putting off the old man with its deeds end quote, we are to consider ourselves as quote, having put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him end quote. colossians chapter three verses nine and ten and as those who are to be quote, a habitation of god through the spirit end quote. ephesians chapter two verse twenty two it is by this divine assistance only that we can grow in grace and improve in all holiness so expressly particularly and repeatedly does the word of god inculcate these lessons that one would think there were scarcely room for any difference of opinion among those who admit its authority sometimes footnote see dr doddridge's eight sermons on regeneration a most valuable compilation and maclaurin's essay on divine grace and footnote the whole of a christian's repentance and faith and consequent holiness are ascribed generally to the divine influence sometimes they are spoken of separately and ascribed to the same almighty power sometimes different particular graces of the christian character those which respect our duties and tempers towards our fellow-creatures no less than those which have reference to the supreme being are particularly traced to this source sometimes they are all referred collectively to this common root being comprehended under the compendious denomination of the fruits of the spirit in exact correspondence with these representations this aid from above is promised in other parts of the scripture for the production of these effects and the withholding or withdrawing of it is occasionally threatened as a punishment for the sins of men and as one of the most fatal consequences of the divine displeasure the liturgy of the church of england strictly agrees with the representation which has been here given of the instructions of the word of god End of chapter 3, section 3.